I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And And this is Hashtag Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. Thank you guys so much for joining us on our second ever episode of Hashtag History. This is actually the second half of a two-part episode, digging deeper into the Chappaquiddick scandals. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, we highly recommend you do that first. Now, without further ado, here's part two of Chappaquiddick. So the next morning, both Gargan and Markham were becoming suspicious that Kennedy had not actually reported the incident. They feared if the incident had been reported, surely they would have heard or seen commotion at the pond, or there would have been cops showing up to the cottage or something. So bright and early that following morning, and by bright and early, I do mean bright and early. It was like 5, 5.30 because neither of those men could sleep. Um, They rushed to Kennedy's hotel over at the Shiretown Inn, and they demanded to know what was going on. This part, I had to put in the direct firsthand account because it is so mind-blowing to me that I had to capture exactly what happened. It's reported that Kennedy, upon being questioned, literally reclined back onto one of the room's twin beds and simply stated... I didn't report it. Gargan and Markham, rightfully so, they flipped off the handle. Kennedy stated that he had gone to bed after arriving at his hotel and assumed that Gargan would take care of the situation, i.e. Gargan would report the incident to the cops in telling them that Kopechny had been driving the car alone. Gargan was furious. He demanded that Kennedy go to the cops and report the incident immediately. Instead, Kennedy made a series of calls to friends and attorneys for advice. The majority of these names that I'm about to read off here, they're not necessary to remember, but I wanted to list them just for the sake of demonstrating just how many attorneys Kennedy ended up having by his side during this incident. So including Gargan and Markham, the following people all advised Kennedy. There's John Tunney, Robert McNamara, Ted Sorensen, Richard Goodwin, Lem Billings, Milton, I'm not sure how to say his last name, Gwertzman, David Burke, (laughs) John Culver, Stephen Edward Smith, and more. Isn't that ridiculous? Yes. And then also might I add that one of those friends that Kennedy called, in fact, the very first person he called, still before going to the police, was Helga Wagner, his mistress, which... Yeah, this is just like a side note that has nothing to do with Chappaquiddick, but tell me how fascinating it is that when Ted Kennedy did end up passing away in 2009, why was one of the last people he talked to Helga Wagner? For real, for real? For real, for real. (sighs) Isn't that crazy? Well, Kennedys (laughs) were known for their mistresses. Yes, they were. Yes, they were, which is why this Chappaquiddick incident is so controversial. So anyway, 
Gargan, again, he demands that Kennedy goes to the cops and he tells Markham, you know what, you go with Kennedy and Gargan leaves. Gargan, he later stated that he didn't want to accompany the senator to the police station because he didn't want to be there and be involved should Kennedy end up giving a false statement, which I think tells you what Gargan's mind frame was at that time, that he fully anticipated that Ted Kennedy was going to lie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it feels kind of like a weird place to insert this information but i can't let this episode go by without providing this one ridiculous little tidbit at around 2 55 a.m back at the um at kennedy's hotel kennedy had the nerve to approach the hotel clerk and make a noise complaint stating that there was noise from um, a party in the hotel that was keeping him awake So it's not the fact that there's a woman in a body of water, either dead or dying, that is keeping him awake. No, it's some people having a party and it's bothering him. Is that, is, do you think he was trying to like establish an alibi? So yes, there is actually further evidence that people have suspected was exactly that, that they were trying to, that he was trying to establish an alibi there because There's also evidence that Kennedy spoke to another hotel clerk a little bit earlier that morning. And that hotel clerk, he reported that Kennedy appeared fine, not in a state of shock. He just simply, hey, what's the time? That's what he asked the guy. And there's suspicion that Kennedy did this to establish an alibi if he chose to go with his initial plan of stating that Kopechny had been in the car alone, which if we can assume that that's exactly what he was doing, that he was trying to create an alibi at two fifty something that morning, he was still planning on lying and telling them that Kopechny had driven the car alone and had died alone. Oh my gosh. So at the same time that this is all happening back at Dyke bridge, a high school science teacher and a teenager, they're trying to go fishing at the pond. And that's when they spot an automobile flipped upside down in the water. They immediately headed to, please tell me where, where did they go? Where's the first place they go? Um, is this on the pop quiz? Um, it, yeah, this is on the, the dike house. Quiz. They go to the dike house, which because I mentioned before, it was only 150 yards from the bridge. So they go to the dike house and they told Mrs. Mom, which I've talked about before, um, they tell her what they've spotted and then they go on their merry way to go fishing and Mrs. Mom, she handles business. So she makes a call to the sheriff's office and Chief Dominic Arena, which his name's going to be very important, he responded to the scene of the incident. Arena attempted to reach the car, but he faced the exact same predicament as Gargan and Markham had the night before. The current just made it impossible. He dispatched the police department and got an officer and a fire department scuba diver to come down. When the scuba diver, um, whose name is John Farrar, when he arrived, it was nearly 8.45 a.m. So remember, this all happened, this accident happened around midnight and now we're at 8 45 a.m the following day while farrar was getting prepared to dive into the water arena was getting word back from the police station that they had identified the car by the license plate number as belonging to edward m kennedy 
The crazy thing here is upon hearing that information, police initially thought that Kennedy had been injured and or killed in the incident. Their very first thoughts were ones of the Kennedy curse, thinking yet another Kennedy had been killed in a tragic accident. Even when Farrar reached the car and confirmed there was indeed a body in the car, he observed, and I quote, a great look of relief on Arena's face when he reported that the woman did not appear to be someone from the Kennedy family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, right here, I'm going to call a little bit of a trigger warning. So um, this part, it's a little graphic. So if you don't like this kind of content, I recommend skipping um, about the next one to two minutes or so. So this, to me, this part is the most fascinating, but it's also the most devastating facts of the entire incident. So remember the car is flipped upside down. Upon reaching the car and discovering that there was a body of a woman inside, Farrar pushed himself halfway through the car. So like basically to his waist. Mm -hmm. And from there, he noted that the head of the woman in the car, it was cocked back with her face pressing up against the floor. Her hands were gripping the edge of the back seat as if she were pushing herself up to the floor of the car. Farrar went on to say later, if she had been knocked unconscious by the crash, she would have either sunk to the bottom or would have been floating at the top. But rather, her body was frozen in that position, pushing herself up to the floor of the car in... It was frozen in rigor mortis, which you know what rigor mortis means, right? Uh, Girl, I watched Forensic Files. I I did not doubt you for a second. But for those that don't know, it's the stiffening of the muscles and the joints in the hours following death. So that shows that she was pushing herself up and grasping for the last bits of breath when she died. So... I know. So Leah, go ahead and look at that other picture that I sent over to you of the one. It's like a diagram of her in the car. Yes. Tell me what you think. Well, I think, well, here's what I see for those who can't look at the picture themselves. um, It's a drawing of a car flipped upside down underwater and it shows her in the back seat of the car, so the car's upside down, and she, it looks like the drawing of her, she's like reaching up, trying to catch the last bit of air before it goes fully submerged. So mm-hmm. that it looks like there's like a pocket of air there, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. So based on what Farrar saw, He later testified that he believed that she hadn't died from drowning, but rather from suffocation. He testified that it looked as if she were holding herself up to get a last breath of air. It was a consciously assumed position. She didn't drown. She died of suffocation in her own air void. It took her at least three to four hours to die. He said, I could have had her out of the car 25 minutes after I got the call but he didn't call. There is, of course, no way of knowing just how long Kopechny might have lived in that car, but it's interesting to note that just three days before the Chappaquiddick incident, the Boston Herald Traveler, which is, it's a newspaper, it ran a story about a woman who had spent five hours in a submerged automobile. 
She was rushed to the hospital when found, was treated, and lived. Doctors say she lived because of an air bubble trapped inside the car. And there's evidence that there was an air bubble trapped in Kennedy's car that may have kept Kopechny alive for several hours. That, like this whole thing, like I said, it's the most fascinating and devastating piece of this whole thing to me because it shows she wasn't knocked unconscious in the crash. It shows she literally fought for her life for as long as she could. It's And he could have saved her in a hundred different ways. Yes. Yes. And just the evidence that she may have potentially lived for several hours. Can you imagine over the course of hours, she knew she was going to die? It's right around 10 a.m. at this point when Arena goes back to Mrs. Mom's house to phone the police department and tell them to send someone to locate Kennedy. That's when Arena is told that Kennedy is already there at the police station and he wants to talk to him. So I have the exchange of their telephone call here, um, Leah. So let's read it back and forth. Let's do a little role play. You tell me who you want to be in this scenario. Um, I will be Arena. Oh, so I, I get to be Kennedy. Yeah, that's, that's okay, the yeah, point. Thanks. I didn't want to be him. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Okay, just go ahead. <laughs> All right. Stage face. Okay. Yes. I'm afraid, Senator, I have some bad news. There's been another tragedy. Your car was in an accident over here, and the young lady is dead. I know. Can you tell me, was there anybody else in the car? Yes. Are they in the water? No. Can I talk to you? Could I see you? Do you want me to come over here, or do you want me to go over there? I prefer you come over here. So that's the little telephone exchange. Thanks for doing that with me, because it would have been kind of awkward to do that by myself. Yeah, role-playing man. I love it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But it's important to note here that Kennedy did not report to the police station until after he knew that he had been caught. So he didn't just show up to the police station. He was making a phone call, one of 17 phone calls that he would make that morning when he got word that a tow truck was lifting his car from the water. So it's at that point that he determines, okay, yeah, I gotta, I have to do something about this. Arena, he goes back to the station and he meets with Kennedy and Kennedy admitted right away that he had been the driver. So I can only imagine the conversations that Kennedy and Markham and who knows how many of his other advisors must have had that morning in order to convince him to admit the truth. Arena was shocked to hear that, and he asked Kennedy to make a statement. Kennedy agreed that he would, but that he would like to write it down and that he would like to have undisturbed time to prepare the statement. Again, here I am calling BS because please tell me in what other scenario a potential defendant would ever have the opportunity to have undisturbed time to write up his statement. Arena agreed to take Kennedy to a private office where he could have some privacy. And then on top of that, when Kennedy asked Arena to return to Chappaquiddick to, you know, make sure his car and all that got taken care of. That's exactly that's what, what matters. Did. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what matters in that situation. And the police chief, he says, oh, yeah, yeah. OK, I'll go do that. So 
Arena went to retrieve the car and Kennedy's attorney, Markham, they both went to work on crafting the statement. When Arena returned, he found Markham hard at work on the statement, which he said to Arena was nearly finished while Kennedy was pacing the floor. Arena noted at this time in watching Kennedy that he could hardly believe that he had been in a major car accident. He looked perfectly fine. Not only did it appear as though he was not injured, he also did not appear to be in shock or to be confused or anything. And Leah, you and I have talked about this before, and fortunately, neither of us have been in major car accidents. But for myself, I have been in one where I was rear-ended. You could tell in my appearance, even several hours later, that I was still flustered mm. and upset. Like, Kennedy is just pacing the floor, looking prim and proper as usual. And it's shocking to the police chief to see that. So um, when the statement was completed, Arena, he went to go transcribe it. Might I add here that there were several crossouts and do-overs all over the paper? But anyway, while transcribing it, that's when it hit Arena why Kennedy appeared to be perfectly fine. Because the incident had occurred more than 10 hours ago. Can you even believe that? When he is standing in the police station, it is 10 hours later. And can you even imagine, like, as the police officer, too, you wouldn't expect that. Like, oh, yeah, I just found your car in the water. Oh, great, you're already at the police station to come talk to me. And wait, what? You went to bed? You went to bed? Yes. So, um, Leah, I have the transcription of the statement. On July 18th, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get the ferry back to Edgerton. I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right onto Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary Jo Kopechny, a former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and the window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in the attempt, I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in front of the cottage and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgerton. I remember walking for a period and then going back to my hotel room. When I finally realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. Okay, tell me what you think. I think he spent some time very creatively crafting that statement. That's what I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I think, too. His attorney spent some time carefully crafting that statement. Arena then took the type transcript to Kennedy to double check it for things like typos. 
That's when Arena was told by Markham that the statement was not to be released to the public, nor was Kennedy going to answer any of Arena's questions until they had heard back from their family attorney, Burke Marshall, whom I mentioned earlier in the episode. Arena, again, agreed to this, but did ask Kennedy if he could see his license. That's when Kennedy told him he didn't have his wallet on him. Arena assured him he just wanted to make sure the license was valid and that it had been properly renewed, to which Kennedy responded, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure it has been. Something else to add here is that Kennedy had never once mentioned to Arena the party back at Chappaquiddick. Arena ended up learning that piece from the media. So all Arena ever got was this statement here, which like you read, has no mention whatsoever of the party or of drinking or anything. Okay, so I'm going to skip over about three hours of time here. Um, At this time, three hours later, the media has been hounding the police station, all while Kennedy is still holed up in a room with Markham and stating that he still hasn't heard from his attorney. Arena makes the ballsy move and releases the statement to the media. In fact, he released the statement twice upon the request of the media so that they could make sure they got everything down correctly. Kennedy's camp didn't learn until shortly afterward that the statement was released and they were not happy about it. Oh, (laughs) boo-hoo. The police station struggled with what to charge Kennedy with, if anything. Everyone involved was deeply concerned about the social and political ramifications at hand. After a great deal of time, Arena eventually decided to write up a traffic violation complaint charging Kennedy with a violation of Chapter 90, Section 24, which, um, Leah, I have that there so that you can read that. Any operator of a vehicle who, without stopping and making known his name, residence, and the registration number of his motor vehicle, goes away after knowingly colliding with or otherwise causing injury to any person, shall be punished by imprisonment for not less than two months or more than two years. Note there the time frames on those two months or wait, it says not less than two months or more than two years. So just remember that for later. But in order for Arena to actually complete the citation, he needed Kennedy's driver's license number and expiration date, which, as you will recall, Kennedy didn't know where his license was. Arena, he decides he's going to place a call to the registry office in Oak Bluffs and make a driver's license request. And when he calls over there, he's basically told, like, yeah, 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 we'll get back to you, which is not a usual response when the chief of police is calling you and asking for, of all people, Edward Kennedy's driver's license to get a response like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, chief, we'll get back to you later. The reason for that kind of response that they gave them, it is because Kennedy's administrative assistant, David Burke, you know, one of the 5,000 people he had helping him that day, he had already called over to the registry inspector to request a license check for Kennedy. The registry inspector quickly learned that Kennedy's license had expired 
on February 22nd, 1969, and had not been renewed. So remember, this incident occurred in July of 1969. So his license had been expired for five months at this point. The registry inspector, upon learning this, instructed his staff to pull the license and place it in an envelope with the car's registration on the registrar's desk. This was not a usual request. The registry inspector, he then called over to the regional head of motor vehicles. That guy's name was Joe Grealish, and he reported this. He was instantly told by Grealish to not release any information whatsoever, including to police chief arena. Literally, you have someone telling you, do not release any information to anyone, including, oh yeah, the police chief. So the registry inspector, he called back over to the registrar. He told him what was going on and he was advised that it would be taken care of. Two days later, Grealish delivered Kennedy's driver's license information to Arena. These records showed that Kennedy's license was valid through February 22nd, 1971, and this information was what Arena then used to complete his citation. This is also the information that Kennedy then later supplied to the court. So it's not long before Kennedy is released from the police station, having not been charged with anything. After he left the police station, he was taken to the Kennedy compound where he was examined by the Kennedy family doctor, Dr. Robert Watt. The examination that Watt performed on Kennedy determined that he had a half inch scrape above the right ear, a bruise on the top of his head, and muscle spasms right about the nape of the neck. He then diagnosed Kennedy with a concussion, contusions, and abrasion of the scalp, and acute cervical strain. Keep in mind that this diagnosis was given to him based on the fact that Kennedy was telling him that he was confused and he obviously had a severe impairment of judgment. All this, these are typical symptoms of a concussion. When the media later called BS on the medical diagnosis, Watt admitted that it was all based simply on what Kennedy told him. Days later, when Kennedy had both an x-ray and an EEG, it was found that there were no abnormalities. Hmm. There were several other things going on at the Kennedy compound. At this point, Kennedy had at least nine attorneys counseling him, and those attorneys do not include Gargan or Markham. Based on the advice provided to Kennedy by his new counsel, Gargan and Markham were to be no part of the planning sessions that were being conducted. In fact, Gargan and Markham were advised by Kennedy's counsel that Kennedy considered all of his communications with them to be that of attorney-client privilege, meaning that neither Gargan nor Markham were allowed to disclose anything that had happened on Chappaquiddick, that the advice they had provided to Kennedy to report the incident immediately was protected by the attorney-client privilege doctrine, and they could not reveal it to anybody. Isn't that ridiculous? Yes. That, that's to me, I'm not going to lie, if my best friend was an attorney, I'd be like, sorry, girlfriend, you can't tell any of my secrets. <laughs> but seriously here. So Tuesday, July 22nd, so this is four days after the incident, 
Mary Jo Kopechny's funeral takes place. And Kennedy arrived at that funeral with his pregnant wife, Joan. Oh, and he also arrived with a neck brace. Even though he had appeared perfectly fine following the accident, and even though his medical prognosis showed no trauma, here he showed up to Kopechny's funeral in a neck brace. So, Leah, I sent you over a picture of Kennedy in that neck brace just so mm-hmm. you can get a visual and um, you can tell me how ridiculous it looks. Well, um, he doesn't he doesn't look too upset and he's wearing a neck brace and looking like a he looks pretty smug to me. <laughs> yes, 100%. That's exactly what I think in that picture, too. So there's suspicion, of course, that that was all a play for the media so he could receive some empathy for his part in the whole incident. This is also the first time that Kennedy was hounded by the media, um, but he was able to brush them off by stating that Kopechny's funeral was not the time nor place to make any kind of statement. So that Friday, July 25th, Kennedy appeared in court when the state of Massachusetts charged him with operating. This is what they charged him with. Ready? They charged him with operating a certain motor vehicle upon a public way in said Ed Gerton and did go away after knowingly causing injury to Mary Jo Kopechny without stopping and making known his name, residence, and the number of his motor vehicle. That's what he was charged with, not with manslaughter, not with lying to the police. Keep in mind, too, that at this time, they still don't know anything about the party at Chappaquiddick. They don't know anything about Kennedy's drinking, and they also believe he has a valid license. So none of those items are even brought up because they're not aware of them. Kennedy pleads guilty to the charge, and that was it. The end. The whole proceeding lasted seven minutes. Seven minutes? Yes, the court proceeding was seven minutes. There were no additional questions asked, so there was no cross-examination or anything done, and Kennedy was not given any time or punishment. In fact, the court determined that Kennedy has already been and will continue to be punished far beyond anything this court can impose. And therefore, they did nothing. After doing some additional research on my end, I found that literally less than a week after the accident at Chappaquiddick, there was a very similar accident that occurred in Salem, Oregon, in which a car went through a chain on a ferry while crossing over a river. The driver escaped from the car while the passenger drowned. And guess what? That driver was ultimately charged with negligent homicide. On the way out of the courthouse, Kennedy was stopped by the media in which he stated that he would be making his public statement about the incident that evening on national television. We have the audio from Kennedy's televised statement here, and we're going to go ahead and play it. Um, The original speech was over 10 minutes long, so we've clipped out some pieces here and there. My fellow citizens, I have requested this opportunity to talk to the people of Massachusetts about the tragedy which happened last Friday evening. This morning, I entered a plea of guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. Prior to my appearance in court, it would have been 
proper for me to comment on these matters. But tonight I am free to tell you what happened and to say what it means to me. On the weekend of July 18th, I was on Martha's Vineyard Island, participating with my nephew, Joe Kennedy. As for 30 years, my family has participated in the annual Edgartown Sailing Regatta. Only reasons of health prevented my wife from accompanying me. On Chappaquiddick Island, off Martha's Vineyard, I attended on Friday evening, July 18th, a cookout I had encouraged and helped sponsor for a devoted group of Kennedy campaign secretaries. When I left the party around 11.15 p.m., I was accompanied by one of these girls, Miss Mary Jo Kopechny. Mary Jo was one of the most devoted members of the staff of Senator Robert Kennedy. She worked for him for four years and was broken up over his death. For this reason and because she was such a gentle, kind, an idealistic person, all of us tried to help her feel that she still had a home with the Kennedy family. There is no truth, no truth whatever, to the widely circulated suspicions of immoral conduct that have been leveled at my behavior and hers regarding that evening. There has never been a private relationship between us of any kind. I know of nothing in Mary Jo's conduct on that or any other occasion. And the same is true of the other girls at that party that would lend any substance to such ugly speculation about their character. Nor was I driving under the influence of liquor. Little over one mile away, the car that I was driving on an unlit road went off a narrow bridge, which had no guardrails and was built on a left angle to the road. The car overturned in a deep pond and immediately filled with water. I remember thinking as the cold water rushed in around my head that I was for certain drowning. Then water entered my lungs and I actually felt the sensation of drowning. But somehow I struggled to the surface alive. I made immediate and repeated efforts to save Mary Jo by diving into the strong and murky current that succeeded only in increasing my state of utter exhaustion and alarm. My conduct and conversations during the next several hours, to the extent that I can remember them, make no sense to me at all. Although my doctors informed me that I suffered a cerebral concussion as well as shock, I do not seek to escape responsibility for my actions by placing the blame either on the physical and emotional trauma brought on by the accident or on anyone else. I regard as indefensible the fact that I did not report the accident to the police immediately. Instead of looking directly for a telephone after lying exhausted in the grass for an undetermined time, I walked back to the cottage where the party was being held and requested the help of two friends, my cousin Joseph Gargan and Paul Markham, and directed them to return immediately to the scene with me. This was sometime after midnight. In order to undertake a new effort to dive down and locate Miss Kopechny. 
their strenuous efforts undertaken at some risk to their own lives also prove futile. All kinds of scrambled thoughts, all of them confused, some of them irrational, many of them which I cannot recall, and some of which I would not have seriously entertained under normal circumstances went through my mind during this period. They were reflected in the various inexplicable, inconsistent, and inconclusive things I said and did, including such questions as whether the girl might still be alive somewhere out of that immediate area, whether some awful curse did actually hang over all the Kennedys, whether there was some justifiable reason for me to doubt what had happened and to delay my report, whether somehow the awful weight of this incredible incident might in some way pass from my shoulders. I was overcome, I'm frank to say, by a jumble of emotions, grief, fear, doubt, exhaustion, panic, confusion, and shock. Instructing Gargan and Markham not to alarm Mary Jo's friends that night, I had them take me to the ferry crossing. The ferry having shut down for the night, I suddenly jumped into the water and impulsively swam across, nearly drowning once again in the effort, and returned to my hotel about 2 a.m and collapsed in my room. I remember going out at one point and saying something to the room clerk. In the morning, with my mind somewhat more lucid, I made an effort to call a family legal advisor, Burke Marshall, from a public telephone on the Chappaquiddick side of the ferry, and then belatedly reported the accident to the Martha Vineyard Police. Today, as I mentioned, I felt morally obligated to plead guilty to the charge of leaving the scene of an accident. No words on my part can possibly express the terrible pain and suffering I feel over this tragic incident. This last week has been an agonizing one for me and for the members of my family and the grief we feel over the loss of a wonderful friend will remain with us the rest of our lives. And that there was Chappaquiddick. The ramifications of the incident were astronomical. Kennedy never campaigned for the presidency, and it is suspected that Chappaquiddick is the reason why. Being the sole male heir of Joseph Kennedy's remaining, there was a lot expected of him, and instead, he cast a huge stain on the whole Kennedy family. What is so fascinating to realize, and a lot of people don't know this, even the people that do know about the Chappaquiddick incident don't know this, it's so fascinating that the exact same weekend that the Chappaquiddick accident took place was also the exact same weekend that the first Americans landed on the moon, which was John F. Kennedy's legacy. John F. Kennedy was adamant that we would place a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s. 
And it just so happened that this accomplishment was realized, what would have been John F. Kennedy's greatest moment, occurred at the exact same time that Ted Kennedy was realizing what I would imagine was the darkest and lowest moment of his life. There were several other ramifications as a result of the Chappaquiddick incident. Remember, I told you earlier that Kennedy's wife, Joan, she was pregnant at the time. She ended up having a miscarriage, and she actually blamed it on Chappaquiddick and the heavy stress that she was under. She and Kennedy would divorce several years later. The district attorney's office in Massachusetts also came under some pretty major fire for not investigating the incident further. There was a lot of information that a proper investigation would have revealed. Some of those things are, for one, Kennedy had a history of serious traffic violations. He had several occasions of reckless driving for which he was cited. One of the most severe citations that I found when I was doing some research, he blew through a red light, um, didn't stop, kept going. And then when he noticed that he was being followed by a cop, he cut off his tail lights so that he couldn't be pursued. So this, and this, <laughs> this was back when he was in law school, which is crazy. Um, he did end up having to appear in court for that incident just to get caught speeding and without a valid license just three weeks after his trial. If a proper investigation had been conducted of Chappaquiddick, they also would have realized that Kennedy had some major alcohol issues. He had been drinking increasingly more in the years following his brother's assassinations. And this was a pattern that his family and friends noted. In particular, the day of the Chappaquiddick incident, it is known that he consumed several beers and more than three rum and Cokes, which um, a rum and Coke doesn't sound too bad right now. No, after the Rose Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was later found out that um, Jack Crimmins, remember the chauffeur, he had purchased three half gallons of vodka, four fifths of scotch, two bottles of rum and two cases of beer for that party. So obviously there was some pretty heavy drinking going on. And because there was no true investigation done into the Chappaquiddick incident at the time, they didn't know any of this. A true investigation would have also found that there was no salt water on the driver's license that they ended up presenting to the police and the court. And that obviously clearly shows that that was not the same license that he had in the vehicle with him at the time of the incident, since it was fabricated for him. Like I mentioned earlier, Kennedy had made 17 phone calls on the morning of the accident, all before going to the cops. And yet this is at the same time that he told the nation that he was in a state of shock and confusion. Another thing um, the investigation would have found is that the owner of the cottage, when he learned what had happened that weekend, he went back to the cottage to check it out and the place had been wiped spotless. Even the trash cans had been taken out. The only thing he found were a couple of Coke bottles. There's so many other things that the investigation would have found, but the most important I think would have been to find out that an autopsy was never performed on Kopechny. It was determined early on that one would not be necessary as authorities felt confident that it was a standard case of drowning. 
But even when the undertaker was preparing her body for embalming, he was shocked to find such little moisture in her lungs for a typical drowning victim. The Kopechny family later tried to have her body exhumed to perform a proper evaluation. But of course, the Kennedy family was able to stop this. And that's that. That's the whole Chappaquiddick incident. What do you think? Wow. I've learned a lot. Honestly, before, I I think I kind of assumed, just because I didn't know that much about it, I kind of assumed like, oh, it was a sucky circumstances that he was in. But no, based on everything you're telling me, he knowingly walked away from this horrible situation. I don't know. It's just unforgivable. Yeah, exactly. It's unforgivable. And I think why I really wanted to talk about it is because I do think it's really relevant to today. The people that are high in authority and the people that have the resources and the power, they are able to sweep these types of things under the rug. And that's what's so sad to me is literally right after this incident, he is getting his own private room at the police department where all of his attorney buddies can come in. And they're literally strategizing about how he is going to respond to the fact that he killed a woman. (sighs) It's, it's insane. But anyway, that is that, that was the Chappaquiddick incident. I do hope all of you um, learned a lot and I want to thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our first episode of Hashtag History. We will be posting in the show notes links to all of the photos and the videos that were mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, do us a favor and subscribe to Hashtag History on whatever podcast platform you use, share it with a friend, and give us a rate and review. Finally, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Hashtag History underscore podcast. Thank you. Thank you.